Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is our text for this morning. <clears throat> Revelation 2, 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in, days, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings in the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for the word that you give us is truth. It is not the words of mere men. It is the words of our Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus, when he rebukes, that we should be those who listen intently, that we might turn from our sins and seek you. Father, we acknowledge that this was not merely a problem of the church in Pergamum, that these challenges have affected your church throughout time, that they even affect us today. And Father, we pray that we would hold fast to the name of Jesus, that we would hold fast to his faith, and that we would be careful of being stained by this world and her ways. Father, help us to turn from our sins and embrace Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our Lord Jesus will be exalted and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. When we think about physical warfare, physical warfare is merely an application. It's a manifestation of spiritual warfare. We think about how Satan works then in his warfare, we can learn something about it and see it applied in the physical warfare. Part of, physical, part of the warfare in life, physical warfare, is you need to have a proper understanding of your enemy. Say, for example, you look in Vietnam. The, uh, the Viet Cong had a very uh, detailed understanding about the American soldier. That they knew that they were uh, oftentimes college graduates and that they were there again, almost against their will because they were drafted, but that they were ones who were fighting for their very lives. Uh, they were intent on winning. They studied the Americans, and when the Americans made a camp, what they would do is that they would look for all the animal and human feces and collect it and get rid of it. Because the typical American, uh, we can't drink water out of a pond. We can't drink uh, uh, a small, we can't drink out of a, of a small creek that's formed because we don't have the stomach uh, stuff. We don't have the, the, the bacteria in our gut to handle that. 
But apparently the Viet Cong, they could drink straight out of the manure pile that had water because they were used to it. And they knew that the Americans could not. So they would booby trap even manure so that when the American soldiers came to clear the manure, they were getting booby trapped. You think about how Satan works. Don't you think he would work the same way as in Hain? He's trying to be faithful. He's lost his job. He lost his job because he wasn't willing to bow down to the guild idol, the, the guild god over, over his occupation. So they kicked him out, and he's starving. But, but what about, uh, he has to walk through town, and, and there, that's, that's, the temp, that's where the temple, the, the temple of the gods are, and, and there are these temple prostitutes out there. I'm going to get him with that. That's like the manure pile. We've got to clear it. And you think about how Satan can get us in any number of ways. He doesn't have to get us in way X, he can get us in way Y or Z. And if he doesn't get us with apostasy, he will get us by, by ensnaring us so that we might be unfruitful. We get distracted from what is the major focus, the main focus. And here you, you see that there are many things that hinder this church in Pergamum, that Christ commends them, yet he also rebukes them. For many of these seven churches, we see that oftentimes the temptation for the church was to conform to the culture of the world. It's so easy for us to go into a different culture and immediately to spot the sins of the Christians who are there. You know what we're not good at doing? We're not good at spotting our own sins because we're breathing the air and we're drinking the water. It's when other Christians from other countries come and they visit us and they see immediately our issues. But then we get very defensive when, when those matters get raised because that's us. And we see the issues with the church in Pergamum and we'll see how those relate to us also. So the, the truth that we see in this message, the church in Pergamum, Christ commends holding fast to his name and doctrine but he also requires keeping yourself unstained by the world. Christ commands holding fast to his name and doctrine, but he also requires keeping yourself unstained by the world. We'll look at this in four points. The first is Christ's characteristics. Second, Christ's commendation. Third, Christ's censure. And fourth, Christ's challenge. So the first point, Christ's characteristics in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Here I mentioned that um, in Revelation chapter 1, the introduction, uh, the John's vision at Patmos, his vision of Christ, certain descriptions were found there that he gives regarding Jesus. And those specific descriptions about Jesus are then mentioned again at the beginning of each of these seven letters to the churches of Asia. And I hope you can see that somehow they are going to be relevant to the specific issue that the churches are facing. So for the church of Pergamum, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Think for a moment about a letter, this letter, that it starts with the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Imagine you received, so your friend Bob comes to visit you at your home. And, and uh, it's, it's unannounced, right? So normally people, hey, can I stop by? Well, it's just unannounced, but then uh, 
He sends you a communication. Either he gives you a call on your home phone or he sends you a text or something, but he's communicating to you, hey, uh, I'm, I'm Bob, I'm outside your door, and by the way, I, I have a sword in my hand. And you might, hey, this is really strange because here you think, well, well, Bob's your friend and you would let your friend in your home with a sword, no problem. But then, you know, does he have to tell you he's armed with a sword? Right? Obviously, if he's not your friend and he, he's armed with, he tells you, hey, by the way, and he knocks on your door, hey, I'm outside armed with a sword. Then you would say, hey, what's going on here? But here, Jesus is saying that he has a sharp two-edged sword. What a serious warning the Lord Jesus is giving. He's saying, listen up. Listen up carefully. Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword. <clears throat> Think for a moment about what Jesus says regarding his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away. You would think that heaven will be there in eternity. But in comparison, he's saying that his word will not pass away. This is saying that there are times when people who were very wise, very astute, that they wrote certain things, and to some degree, it's no longer relevant. So what happened in the past, uh, there, there may be a continuation throughout the future, but in some instances, because certain things have changed, the culture has changed, the standards have changed, what they said no longer applies. And when Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, he's saying that his words will never be passé. They're never going to be uh, obsolete. They're never going to be superseded by someone or something else. They're always true and valid. They always will be. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here people often think, well, Jesus is just going to judge us by our actions. He's not going to judge us by the words that we mutter to ourselves. He's not going to judge us by the thoughts that we have. No, oh, yes, he will. He's saying that right here that he is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the things that we think are hidden, his word will cut down to that very separation between the joints and the marrow. There's no hiding anything from Christ and his word. When you think about Christ's word, you realize for the Christian, it must be for you the final and the persuasive argument. It's not what this and that Christian minister or that theologian said. Ultimately, you are going to obey because you believe it is God's word. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. These Thessalonians did not believe because it was Paul's word. Because the apostle came. They believed ultimately because it is God's word. That it doesn't matter who's repeating to you or who's quoting to you God's word. It's only significant because it is God's word. 
So Jesus is the one who brings that. It's, it's not only a two-edged sword, it's a sharp two-edged sword. It will cut down to the inner recesses to your heart. Don't be upset with the messenger. It is God's word. So that's the first point, Christ's characteristics. We have the second point, Christ's commendation in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even, the days, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Here, we ought not to walk away or dismiss the commendation that Jesus gives. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's the first part of verse 13. We think for a moment about what we know about Pergamum. Pergamum, or other translations might say Pergamos, but this is the word for parchment. That in Pergamum, the city, they developed a special type of parchment from animal skins. And they used it to write on. And Rome had established Pergamum as the capital city in Asia Minor. And you can imagine being the capital city in that area that the worship of Caesar, emperor worship, would have been prime. They, they would have engaged in emperor worship. Pergamum was also known of having many temples, notably the temple of Zeus and also the uh, temple of Asclepius. So he's the Greek god of medicine, Asclepius. He was known to have a staff with a, a, a snake entwined on it. And we see that symbol. Even if you look in medicine, right, in the medical field or nursing or, or, or someone who is a medic, you'll see that there, there's an emblem of a staff with a snake around it. And in this temple, all kinds of people from far away would come and visit Pergamum. They would go to the temple of Asclepius, and they would hope to be relieved, healed of their diseases. And you can imagine that. Why is there the emblem of a snake? Well, all kinds of non-venomous snakes would slither around in the temple of Asclepius. So these, these people would come, and part of the ritual of healing is that these ill people would, would lie down on the floor of the temple when these snakes would slither across their bodies. And somehow this was part of their healing process. And you can imagine how Christians would have viewed this. That Satan is often represented as a serpent. Serpent of the garden, right? The craftiness of the serpent. So when Christians saw this, that they would say, this is satanic. This is definitely satanic. We, we cannot be part of this. So this, uh, this Satan's throne, was it Asclepius' temple? Or was it merely that Pergamum was a very pagan city? That it was a very godless city. It was a you know, satanic city. Well, you, you think about what the scriptures describe regarding uh, the, the lands, the cities, right? Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you look, about, you look at any city, you look at any state, any location, right? Is, is there a sense in which uh, there's going to be darkness? Of course. And in any one of those places, 
Is there the potential to be a Christian church as a light in that city, in that state? And the answer is yes, this is what the Lord desires. And that they, they are called to be the light. They are called to proclaim the good news of the gospel. They are called to pray for their home, for their city, for their state, for their nation, which is what we're called to do. Here, we think about what Jesus is saying. Yet you hold fast my name. So I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. There was the constant challenge of idolatry on every side. They couldn't get out of it. If you worked in a certain occupation, whether you were a stone cutter or you know, uh, a carpenter or whatever, whatever skill that you had, if you were going to be employed in it, you had to work in a guild. And each guild had their patron deity. And if you were going to be part of that guild so that you might be employed, then you had to bow the knee and pay homage to that patron deity. And if you didn't, then you could not work and your family starved. Huh. Isn't this very similar to what we have? You're going to be an electrician. You, you have to have a license, right? If you're going to be practicing medicine, you must be board certified. You see that the, there's commonalities in that. There was the constant challenge of the deification of the Roman emperor. This is what happened. happened. That uh, in any of the lands where uh, Rome was the law, the land, that if someone is accused of being a Christian, this is what the Roman authorities would do. They would say, okay, so-and-so, you've been Bob, you've been summoned as being a Christian, we want to we deal with this right now. Okay, so you're going to do, do three things. Okay? Number one, you will say, Jesus is Lord. Number two, we will hear you curse Jesus. And then third, we will see you burn incense to the emperor. And then you may go. There was a church father by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp, he, 86 years old, he's well, well advanced in age. You think about 86, that's, that's what our elder Wayne is at, 86. He was actually a disciple of the Apostle John. Meaning that it's not that, oh, I, I knew of him. Polycarp was the immediate disciple of the Apostle John. He was called up. He was betrayed. I, I think the story was they, they tortured a slave girl who probably was a Christian. They tortured her to get the answer of where is he? She finally gave it up because of the torture. They, they got him. And the Roman proconsul calls him and says, you will curse Jesus. His response, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And so it continues. Hey, you realize, the proconsul says, hey, he's, he's trying to um, you know, play hardball with Polycarp. He says, hey, you realize, I can send you to the animals to be eaten. I can burn you at the stake. Well, what does Polycarp say? Since thou art vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. So he's saying, hey, you want me to say Caesar is Lord? I'm not saying it. I'm saying I'm a Christian. He comes back. Prokos comes back. You realize I can throw you into the fire. This is where Polycarp 
ramps it up. Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. So translate this into modern English. Hey, why are you delaying? Bring it on. Is, is essentially what he said. Why, why, why are you waiting? Right? Bring it on. And, and there, apparently, this was, uh, this was on a Sabbath day, but it was Jews. Jews were given the exception, hey, you can go and gather sticks. That's fine, because it's for the burning of polycarp. So they made an exception. You can gather sticks on the Sabbath day because it's for a burning of a Christian. Now, holding fast to the name of Christ uh, means not denying Christ before men. And it's especially before those who hold the authority of life and death. Jesus made certain promises. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus warns. Hey, listen. It's someone asks, like the, the, the servant girl who saw Peter, and says, hey, your accent, you're, you're a Galilean. You're, you're with this guy who's about to be crucified. <laughs> no, not me. So it's not just those who are in authority and power. Even the slave girl, when she asked, hey, aren't you with him? That there was a responsibility to say, yes, I am. I'm his disciple. So we see J Satan's first goal. <laughs> He tries to make it painful for you, to persecute you, to coerce you to apostasy, to deny the faith, for you to say, you know what, it's too painful. I can't have the finer things in life. Uh, what about putting food on my table? What about my children? They're not going to get the best education. They're not going to be, uh, they get the best advancement. Here, Satan wants you to say, it's too costly. I will apostatize. Yet Jesus doesn't allow that option out. He mentions, in their immediate context, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So it's not, <coughs> excuse me, it's not merely the, uh, the potential danger, the potential threat of persecution. It wasn't imagined, it was actually real. Everything that he says here, who was killed among you, he didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. So Antipas apparently was someone they knew, a real person. And here we think about witness. The, the translation of that is martyr, right? So the witness is just someone who testifies of Christ, someone who is a witness. Hey, we testify to his resurrection. We testify to his work in our lives. We testify that we are his followers and, his worship, and we worship him. And we're told here, that he was killed among them because he was a witness. And this is how we get well, someone who witnesses is someone who becomes a martyr. And that's saying there really was persecution going on. Someone lost his life because he was a follower of Christ. <clears throat> Antipas was a real person. Jesus commends them that the Christians in Pergamum were not denying his name. They weren't saying, Caesar is Lord. They weren't denying Jesus. They weren't cursing him. But 
they were also being commended for not denying my faith, Jesus' faith, even during persecution. So what Satan does is he tries to get you to compromise on seemingly small incremental matters. He tries to say, oh, come on. This is for the sake of the gospel, just for the advancement. So, so it's like, okay, uh, take, take this little step, right? And then you take that little step, and the world says, well, hey, then take this little step. It's, it's not, it's not going to end. So the question is, when will the world be satisfied with your compromises? The answer is they won't be until you deny Christ. So they're going to they're gonna try to get you to deny all these doctrines. Ah, oh, virgin birth, why does it matter? Huh? The bodily resurrection, why does it really matter that he really resurrected? It only appeared like he resurrected. They're going to try to get you to question each and every one of these things. And, and they're going to say, hey, we will give you respect. We will give you acceptance. We will give you love when you deny this one thing. And they're going to keep coming back and get you to deny more and more and more and more. Jesus is commending them, hey, you didn't give up my faith. So that's the second point, Christ's commendation. And we acknowledge that Jesus knows their situation, where Satan's throne is. They lived in a place where there was great opposition. The third point, Christ's censure, verses 14 to 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Christ's censure begins with you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So we think back to that story in Numbers 25. So uh, a few, several chapters before, so you have uh, Balak. Was it Balak who was the king of Moab, the, the enemy of, of the Jews? He wanted to hire this man. Was he a prophet? He was probably more like a sorcerer. He wanted to hire Balaam. He says, I will make you a rich man. I want you to curse my enemies, the Israelites. And then each time he opened his mouth, he came out with blessing. And, and you know, Balak started to get upset. Right? So here, you can imagine, hey, I'm paying you to curse them, not to bless them. And, and Balaam would say, hey, I don't think you know how this works. Right? What, what God gives, it comes out of my mouth. And, and how he eventually got them was, hey, why don't we uh, entice them? So the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So the daughters of Moab, he sent, he sent the women over there to lead them into idolatry, to practice sexual immorality. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. <clears throat> so he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, you, you all hold to the teachings of Balaam. He doesn't say that. He's a sum there. That should give you a hint about what the issues were. It was toleration. So you have those in the church, many didn't hold to it, but they were willing to tolerate it. Meaning they didn't practice that, but they were willing to tolerate it. Well, how bad is that? Well, 
you look at what happens. Hey, Johnny, Mary, we're going to have some guests over. Uh, they're from the church. Oh, okay, Dad, who are, who are they? Oh, they're this family. Oh, wait a minute. They're the ones who practice sexual immorality, and then they, they go to the, the idol's temple and worship them. Says, yeah, they're the ones. Yeah, we're going to have them over. And we're going to sit down and fellowship with them, you mean? Says, yes, exactly. Well, what is that telling the, the children? If, hey, it's okay to do that. You know, the Apostle Paul gave specific instructions that those who are involved in immorality, we should not even eat with them. There should not be a fellowship. They should not be, a, hey, they're also Christians, and we accept them as brothers in Christ. We accept what they do. There shouldn't be that. You think about how things change. Toleration eventually leads to acceptance. Here, we think about how, for them, perhaps it was a matter of personal religion. We're not willing to practice that, nor are we willing to accept it. But someone else may. Doesn't that sound a lot like our, our gospel of relativism in the world? Hey, what might be true for you is not true for me. What's true for me is not necessarily true for you. Just like this Jesus guy. No, no, Jesus is absolute truth. Well, well, wait a minute, I thought you said there's no absolute truth. Well, of course there's not, except the, the absolute rule that there is no absolute, of course. And, and here we, we think about how important, how important this, this relativism is. No man has a right to judge or condemn anyone else. To some degree, that's actually true. That one person can't deem another person a heretic. Only the church can, can call someone a heretic. Now, if, they, if they're teaching and believing what the church has in the past defined as heresy, that qualifies. But if there's a, if there's a teaching that's different, that no individual has a right to call someone else a heretic, it's a church who does that. So also the church is the one that says that this person has an orthodox doctrine, but their life does not conform to godliness. So they, they are involved in immorality and eating food sacrificed to the idols, and they're not willing to give that up. Then there's something of not doctrine, but of practice. <clears throat> the issue in Pergamum was also that of unrighteous living. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And if we're going to follow Christ, we must give up that which is sinful. So you see Satan's secondary goal here. The first one was apostasy. The second goal, if he can't get you to apostatize, then the goal is that he would make Christians become distracted. They become hindered, ensnared, enslaved to sin. This makes it so that you are unproductive. Whether it be greed, materialism, wealth, lust, pride, whatever it is, some distraction is what he wants. And he desires you to be in bondage to sin and divert you from hearing the words of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.14 I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call. This is what we're supposed to be looking forward to. The kingdom to come, not the kingdom here and now. So what he says to them, verse 16. Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention the Nicolaitans. So, uh, who, who were these Nicolaitans? We don't exactly know. But it's enough that Jesus said, 
in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, in the message to the Ephesians, that Jesus says that he commends them for hating the works of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. That's all that we need to hear. That's really enough for us. Jesus hates the work of the Nicolaitans. So should you. So should I. You ever notice that with children growing up, they're young, we tell them, hey, don't touch that. So don't try to, don't try to take that knife and stick it into that outlet. Don't do that. that that's, that's bad. And then as they get older, you tell them certain things. They're like, why? Why, huh? What? It's like, hey, do we, need, do we need a reason for everything? Are you, are you not going to be convinced? And, and here, you, you think about how there's all kinds of dangers that we face. Are we going to believe Jesus at his word? Hey, what about these Nicolaitans? They're saying that we can, we can be involved in, in idolatrous worship and that they're saying it's okay for Christians to participate in, in idols' temples. Well, Jesus says he hates that. Is that enough for you? Right? Jesus hates it. We shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be permitting it. So he commands repentance. Therefore repent, if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repentance. A call to repentance for you and for me. That this is an opportunity. This is mercy from God. That the fact that he's actually calling us to repent that we forsake our sins, that we cling to Jesus Christ. Jesus says what the real issue is, John 12, 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's Christ's word that will condemn them. Jesus says he will war against them with the sword of his mouth. I ask you, do you think you will war against the Lord Jesus and come out ahead? Are you going to take up arms against Jesus when he is armed with the sharp two-edged sword? The answer is we cannot win. That when he speaks, it is for our good. It is for our eternal good. It is for the protection of life. And that when he speaks, that we ought to obey it. So he says, repent and turn from your sins. We have the fourth point, Christ's challenge, in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this is mentioned in just about every letter of, to the seven churches in Revelation or in Asia. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, I ask you, to what, or rather, to whom are you listening? <coughs> the world is constantly speaking and selling an urgent message that is hostile to Jesus Christ. Are you listening to them, or are you obeying Christ? At his word. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. It's important that we listen to our Lord Jesus 
that we listen to the word of the Spirit. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Jesus spoke about the manna. He spoke about how he preached to people. Is it John 6? He preached to these Jews saying, hey, your ancestors ate of the manna and they died in the wilderness. Jesus is the one who says, "You, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. He is that hidden manna. He is better than the manna from heaven. He is true bread. He is true drink. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your own? It's that important that your parents are faithful. It's important that you are faithful, that you're trusting in Jesus Christ, that you're following him. You must trust in him for eternal life. You must trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not enough to be around those who believe. You must believe. You must obey him. And Jesus promises, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Many wonder what this is referring to. Maybe the simplest way is that the white stone is contrasted in our modern usage or understanding of uh, the phrase to be blackballed. So when not you're trying to get into a fraternity, a sorority, or some kind of exclusive club, the concept of being blackballed is that there is a council and that a white ball, a white marble, means acceptance. A black ball means rejection. And depending on the group, it might only be one black ball is needed for the person to be rejected. And for you as a Christian, you're probably constantly being bombarded by the black ball from the world. By the sons of disobedience, rejected, despised, reviled. How can you believe that? You're a fool. You're old-fashioned. You're a bigot. And people will say all kinds of things. Understand that... uh, Because Satan is behind it, they're not going to say, oh, you're actually faithful to the Lord Jesus. We commend you. No, they're not going to say that. They're going to make up all kinds of other things. But here Jesus is saying, despite the rejection from every side, for for whatever reason, for every angle, he is the one who gives the white stone. That when he makes the promise and he says, this one is mine. This one is covered by my blood. It is a promise of sure acceptance by the Father in heaven. To be covered by the blood of Christ means something to him, and it must mean something to you. The white stone is that of acceptance, and it is a good thing. Here we think about how this word could be of good use to us. It speaks about the importance of the purity of the church, that the toleration of sins of others. I'm going to be straight with you. Church discipline is not easy. When people leave a church, they're not going to tell you the real reason why they left. They're going to make, most likely, if it's because of their own sin, they're going to make accusations against you or against us about why they've left. And we shouldn't be so easily deceived that sin... Sin is going to be 
circumspect and it's going to make counter accusations. At any time, there should be non-Christians within the church. There should be those who are wanting to hear what is it that you believe. Hey, I, I heard you share about this good news. I want to hear it preached. I want to, I want to hear what the word of God says. That There ought to be non-Christians who are visiting the church all the time. It is a good thing. But there must be a distinction between those who have committed their lives to Christ and those who have not. And for those who have, that we must hold them to the high standard of faith and life. Here, we think also about the world's highest praise for this matter of toleration. Toleration is great until it comes to the name, the person, the God who is Jesus Christ in his word. Then somehow toleration is somehow bad. The world becomes especially intolerant to those who follow and love Jesus Christ. Satan's temptations are going to be that of apostasy. He's going to make it particularly painful, particularly costly, particularly reviling for you to be following Christ. He wants you to see, man, that is a steep hill that I cannot climb. Why don't you just turn around and just go back down the hill? Downhill path is the easy path, but the downhill path is the path that leads to hell. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Apostasy is no solution to the difficulties of being a Christian. The other method he will use is adulteration. He will attempt to deceive you. He would attempt to ensnare you with all kinds of sins that will make you unproductive in the church, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in the kingdom of God. You cannot be a friend of the world and also the friend of God. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. You cannot be friends of both. You must make your choice. You're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of Jesus Christ. You cannot be both. You cannot satisfy both. Beware also of the incremental steps of compromise in your life and doctrine. The temptation will be a little step at a time. They're not going to tell you what the big picture is. We're going to have you take 150 steps. And before you know it, you will have denied everything Anything and everything about what the world of, word of God teaches. But it will be one step at a time. And each time, there will be a promise. We will love you if you do this. We will accept you if you do this. That is exactly how Satan will work. Don't start walking down that path of compromise. Do what the Lord has commanded you. Compromise nothing. Trust in him in everything. And realize that there will be opposition to you and to your life. You are a target. If you are followers of Jesus, you are a threat to the kingdom of God, threat to the kingdom of Satan. And understand that that opposition will be a full court press that does not give up. Trust in the Lord that though we succumb to temptation all the time, that's called sin, that we have in Jesus one who is a perfect Savior who calls us to repent, calls us back to Him, that we examine closely the truths that we hold to be so dear, because in many ways, those are often deceptions from the world. We ought to be careful about them. But we trust in our Lord Jesus, for he is the one who graciously receives sinners. Let's go to our God together in prayer.